the picture was remarkably unremarkable. Recalled John Nye, owner of Nye and Company Auction House. This picture looked like a dark, discolored portrait of three people, of whom one is passed out. He collected this painting from a New Jersey basement, along with other antique furniture, silver, and art from the deceased homeowner. He expected to fetch maybe $500 for this painting, simply for the fact that it looked old. The surface of the picture was flaking, the wooden backing had cracks, it was entirely unimpressive, he said, in its tarnished state. So he had his restorers clean the piece up a bit, and he took the painting to auction. It sold for $870,000, which was a bargain, because the conservationists uncovered the initials RF in the upper right-hand corner. Those initials stand for Rembrandt Facit, or Made by Rembrandt. The piece is now known as the Unconscious Patient and dates back to 1642, painted by the famous Rembrandt, the Dutch artist, when he was just 18 years old. It hangs now in the Getty Museum In Los Angeles, it's on loan from American billionaire Thomas Kaplan, who owns it. And the estimated worth of this painting now is over $10 million. Remarkably unremarkable is what John Nye said when he first saw it. Tattered and tarnished, old-fashioned and invaluable. This is how our culture today views marriage. Like a tattered and tarnished painting, out of style, traditional, and some might even say, remarkably unremarkable. God's masterpiece, this glorious human relationship, has been put away and neglected. It's been defamed with no regard for the honor of the artist who painted it. What we need to do is restore the picture of God's original beautiful design back in our minds. And to do that, we need to go back to the beginning. When the crown of human relationships was created. Turn open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. As we look at God's masterpiece, His original design, this beautiful human relationship that He said was very good when He created it. Genesis chapter 2, we are going to look at just one verse, verse 24 today, but I want to set some context. Chapter 1 of Genesis is a general account of the six days of creation. God created everything out of nothing. And he created everything in six literal 24-hour days. 
That's what we get from the natural reading of this text. And you'll notice he created man on the sixth day, both male and female, and they are created in the image of God and in his likeness. That is that man, both male and female, were created as mirrors and representatives of God on this earth. We were created to be kings and queens, to rule God's planet, his kingdom, on his behalf and for his glory and according to his design. It's a high honor that we have, a great privilege. He creates two genders, again I said it, male and female, both in his image and likeness, and he gives them a mandate, a command, instruction. He says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. In summary, multiply and rule. That's what we were designed to do. That's our purpose. And now in the second chapter, we see Moses, the author of Genesis, focus in specifically on that sixth day. And he gets more specific about the creation of man and the creation of woman and their relationship to each other. In their creation, we see that God gives them defined roles to play, okay? He creates the man first, and he designates man as the responsible leader. He gives man the responsibility of cultivating the garden, of of working, and then also man is given the command, uh, the, the forbidding of eating of the tree of knowledge. And so man is held responsible for those commands. And then God creates woman from man, and God creates her as a suitable helper. Chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So he creates man as leader and the woman as helper. Now, some women have a problem with the word helper. They feel like that makes them inferior or less than a man. Helper seems to be like ladies are kind of less than. Well, that word for helper in the Old Testament is the same word that you see in the Greek translation in the New Testament to describe the Holy Spirit. Helper. And we know that God, the Holy Spirit, is not less than God. He's not, uh, he's, he is equal with God the Father and the Son, but in his role functions as a helper. And so man and woman created equal in value before God, both made in his image and according to his likeness, yet with distinct roles, a difference in roles. And, and if you have a problem with the word helper, ladies, I encourage you to take it up with the Holy Spirit and see if he has a problem with being called helper. It it does not diminish your value in any way. Co-equal, co-valuable before God, yet with different design and responsibility and role. And then God, of course, ordains the first marriage in chapter 2, verse 24. I want to remind us that all of this, including the creation of man and woman, and marriage, God says all of this is very good. 
Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 31. This is after the sixth day. God saw everything that he had made, including man and woman, in their relationship. And behold, it was what? Very good. God's design, his order, is very good. It's perfect. It is beautiful. Glorious. And when we function according to our design, when we come under God's order and His purpose, we glorify Him and represent Him beautifully to the world. Now, what we must notice is that God's order and His design does not leave room for non-binary gender expression. It doesn't. God creates specifically two genders, and he names them, male and female. God doesn't uh, create additional options, and, and both of these genders are made in the image and likeness of God. Also, we notice that God's design leaves no room for non-heterosexual expression. Woman is the suitable helper designed for man. God did not create a copy. He created a complement. The creation mandate, our purpose, is to multiply and rule. The multiply part is impossible in a homosexual relationship. A man, according to to Genesis 2.24, leaves his family to cleave to his wife. That's the specific order and design of Genesis chapter 2. God's design does not leave room for polygamy or an open relationship. God ordains marriage to be between one man, singular, and one woman. There's no comment about additional sexual partners or parties in the relationship. The early patriarchs failed at this point pretty quickly. Also, we notice that God's design leaves no room for ethnic superiority or prejudice. There is a historical Adam, a historical Eve, and from them we get all people. People of different color, different culture, and different languages. They all go back to Adam. So all people were created in the image and likeness of God. Despite skin color, cultural differences, or language differences. Ethnic prejudice is an attack on Genesis chapters 1 and 2. As all these other deviations are. You can see that the enemy has worked really hard in our day and age to attack God's beautiful design, to deviate it, to twist and turn it from every angle. There's, the enemy is seeking to mar man's image and man's purpose, leaving the world confused, hostile, and engaging in all kinds of unnatural acts. Listen clearly. Every evil and sin today, every evil and sin today finds its root in a deviation from God's design in Genesis 1 and 2. 
every sin and deviation that you see today finds its root in a deviation from God's design in Genesis 1-2. Therefore, it is an attack against the Creator. Romans chapter 1 describes the end of mankind, the bottom of the barrel of society. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, note children, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, they not only do these things, but give approval to those who practice them. This is, this is the end of culture and society. And do you know where all of this starts? Back at the beginning of this section in Romans 1, verses 18 to 20. Paul tells us where all this starts. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All evil and sin starts here who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since when? The creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul says, God's design is crystal clear. His order is explicit. So to deny, defy, or deviate from it, to choose your own way, well, that's inexcusable. So we need to take God's design and order seriously and not try to change God's design or order to fit our preference or our feelings. We need to not mar this beautiful painting that God has created and go back to the beginning to see what He created us to do, how He created us to relate to one another, specifically in the marriage relationship. So let that serve as a warning and just kind of a context umbrella to the passage that we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. This is important. This is the design, the foundation of marriage. This verse. Look at Genesis 2, 24. It says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, what you would see here immediately if you understood ancient culture and the Hebrew language is that uh, Moses uses covenantal language. The marriage relationship is a covenantal relationship. Now, what does that mean? Covenant. Here's my definition right there, and it'll stay on the screen so that you can write it down in your outline. A covenant is a relational and binding agreement between two parties under oath and ratified 
by a visual ceremony. A covenant is a relational and binding agreement between two parties under oath and ratified by a visual ceremony. This is an ancient cultural thing that we don't know much about today, honestly, because we're just kind of in this anti-committal romantic culture. The closest thing that you might think of when compared to this is a contract. A contract, a binding agreement between two parties, right? But here's the major difference between a typical contract as we see it and a covenant. A covenant is centered more on the relationship and the binding. A contract is more focused on the legalities, the, the wording on the paper, if that makes sense. It seems to be like that's something that we could separate from the relationship. Covenant centers on relationship. Relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship. It has all of these components. We see that it is between two parties, a man and his wife, a woman. It's relational and and binding. The man cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. It's under oath because this is before God. It's a promise made before God. And there's a visual ceremony. You have the public ceremony where a man actually leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And we have the private ceremony of sexual intimacy, which consummates the marriage, becoming one flesh. Elsewhere in the Bible, God talks about marriage being a covenant. Malachi 2.14, the people of Judah are indicted because they're marred with divorce. Divorce is everywhere in the land. And Malachi says this, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by what? Covenant. Proverbs 2.17, The adulterous woman who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the what? Covenant. Of her God. Notice that both Judah and the adulterous woman are indicted not only for forsaking their companion, but for forsaking the covenant they made with God. You got to understand that breaking the marriage is not only a horizontal offense, it's a vertical offense as well. Marriage really involves three parties. It's a covenant between a husband and his wife under oath before God. And it needs to be considered that way, taken seriously, as it's both relational and binding under oath. I've had the privilege of officiating several weddings now, and it's a joy to do. And and couples have all kinds of ideas about how they want to make the ceremony special. I've had couples tie ropes together to illustrate their union. I've had couples request to wash each other's feet uh, in the ceremony as a symbol of their service to one another. I've had couples request a special song sang by their friend or family member. Some would take communion in the ceremony. Others would do a traditional dance. Really, for me, I, I don't mind, I don't care. You can kind of arrange the ceremony how you like. The thing that is most important to me are the vows. Because that's really what we're here to see and what these two are here to do. 
And by the way, your vows need to be actual promises to each other. I don't know how many weddings you've been to recently, but one of the trends in culture is, is to make all these present statements to each other. And, and, and couples like to write their own vows, which is fine, but sometimes you'll catch them saying things like this, oh, I love you so much when you X, Y, Z. Or, oh, I love when your eyes glitter in the moonlight. And this is in their vows. I love the way your hair flows in the wind. I'm ready now to make you my bride. Or I'm ready now to take you as my husband. Pookie bear. Whatever else. (laughs) It's a lot of now, under current circumstances, I really love you. What I want to hear is not I love you now. I will love you until death. What I want to hear is I'm not going to just take you now under the current circumstances and based on the way that you look right now. I want to hear I'm going to take you under worse circumstances. For better or for worse. In health and in sickness. Until death do us part. These need to be actual vows. I will love you. I promise to stay with you until death. Because recognize that these vows that are being exchanged, it's not just comments made to each other. They're promises made to each other before a greater audience. We stand here and you make vows before God and these witnesses. And these witnesses can hold you to these vows that you're making before God. When the going gets tough, when the relationship is strained, when the body begins to stretch and sag, you remember your vows. You remember that covenant that you made to each other and before God. That's marriage. That's marriage. And so marriage, we have to see, is a covenant. This is covenant language that Moses is using here. A binding relationship that's under oath, set and ordained by God. And one of the problems that our culture has with marriage is is a problem with their view of love. And so before we get to the actual verbiage of the text here, this is all going to help us understand what God is saying through this verse. We have to look at what love means. Specifically, I want us to look at hesed, point number two, hesed, loyal love. Hesed is God's covenant-keeping loyal love. And it's really beautiful. You know that Western culture, the culture we live in, romanticizes love over-romanticizes love to where that love is equated with passion or feelings or love is made to be like an emotion. And so when the good feelings, the emotions or the passions leave, then the love fades away. It's really a shallow view of love. It's temperamental. It quickly changes. That is not the love of God. 
And that's not the love that God asks of a husband and a wife in marriage. Covenant-keeping love is hesed. It's loyal love. This Hebrew word is all over the Old Testament, but it's one Hebrew word that's translated with a couple words because it's kind of hard to sum up in one English word. So you'll see it with modifiers. It could be translated as steadfast love, or it could be translated as unfailing love, or loving kindness. But my preferred or favorite way to translate it is loyal love. It's love that is inextricably attached to a promise. I promise to love you until death do us part. And this love comes from God. It originates with Him. When the Lord passed by Moses in Exodus 34, He proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in hesed, steadfast love. Daniel 9.4 prays to the Lord and makes a confession saying, O Yahweh, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and hesed, steadfast, loyal love. God's love is loyal. It is steadfast. It doesn't change despite the circumstances, despite the recipro- this reciprocation from his object of love. One of the greatest displays of this that we have in the Bible is in the Old Testament in the prophet Hosea. This is a great illustration of God's loyal love. God tells Hosea, Go find a wife among the prostitutes. Go find a wife, Hosea, among the adulteresses. Because I'm going to make an illustration out of your marriage. And he does. Hosea goes and finds a wife. Her name is Gomer. Despite that, he stays commitment or committed to her. And God tells him, Hosea, I want you to stay faithful and loyal to your wife, even though she will run away, she will cheat on you, she will commit adultery. I want you to stay with her because this is a great illustration of my unfailing love for Israel. See, the people of Israel, they had joined in covenant relationship with God. And they had broken or broken that covenant relationship by chasing after other gods, by sinning against God, by worshiping false idols. Continuously, they kept failing and failing and failing. And yet what? God stays loyal to them. He does not remove His promises from them. He stays committed to His people even though they rejected Him and hated Him. And commit adultery on him. Like an unfaithful bride, the people of Israel tried to run away from their relationship with God in pursuit of other idols. But God made a covenant in Hesed. And he keeps it. He continues to love them despite their disloyalty. You know, some people in marriage say, I just give up. I give up. 
he or she just won't change, or he or she isn't good enough, or I don't love he or she anymore, so I give up. God's love doesn't give up. And praise Him for that. Hosea didn't give up on Gomer. God didn't give up on the people of Israel. Jesus, when He was hanging on a cross, being mocked, forsaken, beaten, killed, didn't give up, but stayed until it was finished. And he died for your sins. That's Hesed. That's loyal love. Unfailing, never giving up love. And I want to encourage you, husbands and wives, and future husbands and wives, this is the kind of love you need to remember in your marriage when the going gets tough. This is the kind of love that you need to remember and be filled with when things are hard, you need to remember said. When you feel like you can't give anymore and you want to give up, remember the love of God and praise Him that He never gave up. Amen? And that motivates us and fills us with the ability to sacrifice still more and love still more. Tim Keller gives a great illustration in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He compares Western passionate love with uh, God's hesed, loyal love. He says, passionate love is like a babbling brook. It's fresh. It's a little bit loud and noisy. It's exciting, but it's shallow. It's easily moved by the changing terrain. In fact, it's often quenched even in the change of seasons. It's there in spring, but by the end of summer, it's all dried up. Loyal love is like a quiet river. It may not appear as exciting, but you know it's moving water. It's deep and it's wide. It cuts the landscape and it does not move. It's stable and steadfast and it is not quenched. It's there in the winter. It's there in the spring. It's there in the fall. It's there in the summer. And it's still moving hundreds of thousands of gallons a minute. Which love has more power? The babbling brook or the quiet river? Let me ask it this way. Which which love would you rather have from God? The babbling brook or the quiet river? Deep, loyal, steadfast love, faithful and unfailing. This is the love that God has for us. And this is the kind of covenantal love that he expects for us to display to each other. This is true love. God's love. Now, with the time that we have remaining, I want us with that lens and that backdrop of covenant and covenant love to now look at this text. So why don't you look down at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. There are two main instructions given to us in this passage. Leave and 
cleave, as some translations put it, but what you see in the ESV is hold fast, okay? I like leave and cleave because they rhyme and it helps me remember, but you can remember it as leave and hold fast. So point number three, leave, leave. To leave is to cut off parental binding. Very important when establishing the marriage covenant. Now, the Hebrew word for uh, leave is, is severe. It means to cut off or amputate. Wow, strong language used when severing this old relationship. And, and what Moses is saying is that it's denoting the end of one relationship upon the entry of another Moses probably writes specifically to the man in this culture and context because it's patriarchal. And it was typical that the patriarch, the grandfather, the father's father, would hold significant influence over the direction and the authority of the family, even of his sons and his grandsons. They would continue to live with him. They would continue to live under his authority. The patriarch would often call the shots for any individual family unit. And so Moses makes it very clear. He says, young man, you leave that authority. You leave that when you join yourself to your wife. It is a new family unit. You're no longer under the authority, the provision, or the protection of the patriarch. You're a new family unit in God's eyes. The central family unit, the most important relationship is now between you and your wife. Now today in culture, there are different, obviously we have different cultural backgrounds, and some, you know, the matriarch holds the influence and the authority over uh, the, the family, and so we have to watch out for that. And just because Moses doesn't write explicitly to the wife to leave that relationship doesn't mean we assume, oh, well, it's good for the husband to do that, but the wife, she could still stay tied to mom and dad. No, no, no. The idea that Moses is saying here is that, again, you're leaving an old relationship behind upon entry of a new one. This is the new family unit on this foundation, the foundation of a husband and his wife. This is now the most important and fundamental relationship of the household. That means, husbands, wives, this is your newest and greatest Loyalty. Your loyalty is with him. And her, his loyalty is with her. You know, as husbands and wives, some of you have physically left your homes, but you've left the lines open and the hooks in to your marriage. Maybe you do that for emotional stability, for comfort, for a plan B when the marriage is rocky. You need to know that this defines God or this defies God's design. You're undermining the foundation of your marriage when you do that. Mom and dad don't fix your marriage. In fact, they might be making it worse and harder, putting a stumbling block between you and your spouse. Cut the lines. Your spouse needs to know that they have your heart. They have your uttermost loyalty. They have your trust. 
And when you got married, listen very carefully, you took your heart from your parents' hands and you placed it in theirs. This is now the most important relationship before God. And this is now your priority. And so you work things out together. Now, mom and dad have been put in the position, not of authority, but of counselor and of helper. And it's good to go to mom and dad and ask for advice or to ask for wisdom in a marriage. That's a good thing. And that honors the Lord. And by the way, parents, don't go very far because your kids have obligations to you once you get old. All right? They've got biblical obligations in 1 Timothy 5 to take care of you. So don't move too far away, okay? But this new family unit, the husband and his wife, they make decisions together. And you no longer defer to the authority of your parents. And we need to hear that someday, sometimes in our cultures. Parents, you need to know that your time with your children is limited, but your time with your spouse is until death. You've got maybe 18 to 20 to 25 years with the kids. You've got 50 plus, Lord willing, with that man or that woman. That's the most important relationship. And your kids need to see that. Your kids desperately need to see that mommy loves daddy and daddy loves mommy and that their marriage is the priority. And it may seem counterintuitive, but that actually sets them up for success in life and a successful marriage. Listen to me when I say this, and I say this with gentleness and care. If your child thinks that they are the most important, if your child thinks that they're the priority over your spouse, then you've set them up for a failed marriage. You're setting them up to fail God's design. You're setting them up to fail the very first instruction of marriage, which is to leave. They'll cling to you forever. And for some of you, that goes, well, that kind of sounds good. I want them with me forever. It's not. It's not for their good. It's for your good. It's a selfish desire that doesn't help your child in the ultimate at the end. Because the ultimate good for your child is, get this, to function according to God's design, to leave. And so, Parents, stop working so hard to prevent that day from coming. Oh, I want to keep them as long as I can and change that energy. Work hard to set them up so that fathers, when you walk down the aisle with your daughters and you make that handoff, you're confident in knowing they married well. I prepared them well. And this man, I trust and I trust my daughter. And this is for their good. Work hard at getting ready for that rather than working hard at preventing the inevitable. This is all very good. This is according to God's design. A man and his wife, they need to leave the parental binding behind and join to their new spouse. There is not a stronger foundation in the home than a healthy marriage. There are few lessons in life more important to your children than to teach them and show them the priority of the marriage relationship. And so first, leave. You, need, you must cut off the parental binding. And now, secondly, let's look at cleave. Cleave. 
This is the second instruction in the marriage relationship. This word for cleave, in our ESV translation, it, it says hold fast. It's also a word that's used for something that's sticky, like glue. You've got to stick together. Moses is telling the husband to stick to his wife. And this speaks of the inextricable union of marriage, so unified, in fact, that they become what? One flesh. I want to go back to the water and the river illustration. I think it's helpful. Here's a picture of two streams merging and continuing into a one flesh river. This is what's happening. Two streams are converging, merging into a one flesh river. Your whole life is now joined inextricably to this other person. Yikes. That's what marriage is. It is a binding now, we see the binding in the physical oneness of sexual intimacy, and that's vital and that's important for proper flow in the one flesh merit or the one flesh river. But we're going to talk about that aspect next week. But more than that, there's the relational and directional oneness. You're one flesh before God in relationship, in communication, in everything. Your whole life, again, is poured in to that one flesh river, and inextricably connected to your spouse. So much so that everything you are, the good and the bad, everything you have, the assets and the debt, everything you do has this other person inextricably attached. You don't you no longer make decisions for yourself. You make decisions together and united. Everything flows in the one flesh river. Your personality, quirks, your finances, your big life decisions, your big life responsibilities, your burdens, your problems, your good habits, your bad habits, your parenting, the way you use your time, your friendships at work, social, they're no longer yours individually. They are ours together. Even your spiritual health. This is an important point. In fact, in Peter, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that the consequences of a husband who does not live with his wife in an understanding way, a husband who doesn't honor his wife as a co-heir of the grace of life, you know what the consequence is? God doesn't hear your prayers. That's how inextricably connected your marriage is to your spiritual walk and your life. Paul in Ephesians 5 says husbands ought to love their wives like they love their own bodies. If they neglect and don't nourish their wives, then you're neglecting and not even nourishing yourself. You're hurting yourself. You're hating yourself, in fact. And then he quotes Genesis chapter 2.24. See, you're now one flesh. You're one flesh. You can't separate your marriage relationship and your relationship with God. They're inextricably connected. Everything flows in the one flesh river. And so if you're not right with your spouse, you're not right with God. If you're... That threw me off. Uh, if you're not right with your spouse, you're not right with God. So you need to leave your sacrifice at the altar, as Scripture would say. 
Go make things right with your spouse. The men are, thank you. Awesome. Scripture says if, you, if you're not right with your brother or your sister, then you go make things right before you make the sacrifice of worship, right? That's what you need to do with your spouse before you go to God. Make sure the relationship is right and everything is flowing in the one flesh river. Tend your garden. Make sure that your marriage is good. Keep watch over the river and guard against any deviations or divides. This is why it's so hard, by the way, nigh impossible to be unequally yoked. This is why it's so hard. Because you're like two oxen in a yoke. Do you know what a yoke is? It's that piece of wood that binds them together. You're like those two oxen trying to go in different directions, yet you're yoked at the neck. It just doesn't work. That's not how God designed it. God designed for you to be yoked and bound and going in the same direction. Finally, just to close, I know I'm running out of time and the alarms are going off to have me rush and hurry, finish my message. I know their strategy, the kids' ministry. Jesus talks about the importance of the marriage covenant in this one flesh relationship. And he, he quotes our passage in Matthew chapter 19. You have it there in your outline. Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6. This relationship is so important to God. The Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Hey, for what reasons can we divorce? It's like, man, what a wrong question. And Jesus confronts them and calls them out on that. He says, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning goes back to creation, made them male and female, and said... Here's the ordination of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Didn't you know? This is a covenantal relationship. They're bound together under oath before God. And he emphasizes that. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And he says this, What therefore God has joined together Let not man separate. The marriage union is God's union. God's relationship. It's a covenant that's made between a man and his wife for life. Who are you? Or who is anyone else to try to separate that union? It should not be easy for us to say, oh, I give up and I walk away. How dare we think and look across hills and say, oh, the grass is greener on the other side. No, no, no. Stay loyal to your spouse. Hold your covenant. Hold fast to the relationship that God designed as beautiful and good. And may your marriage flow like a deep and wide river according to God's design that pushes a lot of water It makes a great impact to the world. A great witness and testimony of God's faithful, loyal love towards us. When the going gets tough in marriage, despite the circumstances, whether it's financial, relational, emotional, whether it's sexual, problems arise, 
Remember your vows. Remember the covenant you made. And remember God's design. And work on it. And stay. And don't give up. Let me pray. Father, we recognize you as the sovereign king who ordained marriage. You made this beautiful, beautiful union between a man and a woman. Two complements that were designed for each other. To be in this covenant relationship, which is is not just a duty or an obligation. But God provides us pleasure, joy, fulfillment, satisfaction, loyalty, a closeness that goes beyond friendship, a partnership. God, I pray that Summit Bible Church, our our people would enjoy those kinds of relationships, those kinds of marriages. Pray that you'd fortify and strengthen marriages here that are maybe on the rocks or, or struggling, that they would remember their vows and work on the relationship together. That if anything, they would hold fast to the mast of their covenant. God, I pray for future marriages in this room as there are singles here who are looking forward even children who are looking forward to one day marry, I pray that they would marry by God's design, by your design. That they would not look for any other fulfillment outside of that. Because your design is good and it's beautiful. God, I want to thank you for the example and the witness of some even here today who have fulfilled their vows. Who stayed faithful and loyal to their spouse even until the day that they passed. What a testimony. And praise you, God, for enabling them to keep their vows. And what a blessing, what a privilege, what an honor, what a reward they will receive one day in heaven for doing so. God, I pray that you would take our humble humble offerings, our humble sacrifices of worship, and that you would glorify yourself in us and in our marriages. In Jesus' name, amen.